So uh, throughout this year, uh, we have been working through the book of Genesis, and one of the things that we said about the book of Genesis way back at the beginning was that it's a book filled with human stories, lots of different human stories. Some of them are phenomenal, they're fantastic, uh, uplifting. Uh, we've seen that, and it, so it, this week fits that as well, because we've, well, the week we're, what we're going to talk about doesn't, but just getting to experience VBS uh, and how many awesome things happened there uh, we, is, a, is a good, positive, uplifting human story. Uh, I had a blast with the, with the, if your kids were there, I had a blast with them. Um, I got to channel, I actually got my ministry start in youth ministry, and it, <laughs> almost 19 years ago, which, oof, that feels like a long time. Uh, and so, but I got, to, I got to bring back some of that again. I got to lead a small group. Uh, there was a visit by a really handsome guy named Kent. Um, so that was fun. You know, got to play the characters again uh, and interact with the kids that way. Super uplifting, awesome week. And we, 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 in this space here, have human stories like that, that are these big, uplifting, awesome stories. But what we've also seen in the book of Genesis is that like real human experience, we have days where we're on top of the world and we have days where we can experience things that are a lot different than that. Uh, this week was a, was, a, was a tricky one for us because we knew it was the picnic. We knew that we were coming off of VBS. And the story we're going to look at is one of the hardest ones we're going to look at all year. Uh, so both of those things happened at the same time. And so we actually contemplated for a bit, do we push it? Because we don't want to treat it flippantly. Uh, but we also want to be able to celebrate. And we decided not to because we realized our human experience works that way where we have these great moments, but then we also talk about serious and heavy things as well. One of the things that I love about this church community, if you're new here, is that we, we haven't shied away from talking about the hard things that we experience in life, and we're not going to today either. So if you were here last week, I, I, I did give a little bit of a trigger warning uh, before we started, and I want to just mention that again. We're going to talk about some, some, some things that, that, unfortunately, too many people in this world have had to deal with, uh, and maybe you're one of them. And if that's the case, uh, we, uh, one, just know that we're here for you. We care a lot about that. If you need to talk to somebody afterwards, myself, Lisa will be available. Uh, Danielle will be available. Anybody that you would, uh, would like to talk to in that space, um, uh, we, we want to be here to pray with you or talk with you, whatever that might be. Uh, but we do think it's important that we, that we actually uh, address the hard things that we experience. So we're going to do it a little bit different this morning. Um, instead of me teaching a sermon normally, I've, I have a friend that's going to help me out. Uh, we're kind of combining his next step story uh, with the passage we're going to look at today. So I'm going to invite Kyle to come up. Kyle Bull. Uh, if you don't know Kyle, you should. Uh, I've gotten to know him more over the last few, few years and just a phenomenal human being uh, with a phenomenal story and a huge heart for the Lord and for literally anybody that he meets, I think, right? Or he's faking it. I'm yes, pretty sure he's right, real, though. Right. Yeah. So KB is, uh, has become a good friend of mine, and his story is powerful. So we'll, we'll open with, with, with his story. So take it away, Kyle. All right. Thank you so much, uh, Brent, for for allowing me to come up and share a little bit of my next step story. Um, also, like Luigi and the band, let's give them a round of applause because they're really, really bringing it. Thank you so much. It's a, there's a lot of work being done uh, to make that happen. Um, again, uh, Brent wasn't lying. My name is Kyle, and uh, my wife Lindsay is here. Uh, my kids, Braylon and Brielle, downstairs in the basement, uh, which is an awesome thing. They love it, and they've gotten to know some great friends as well as Lindsay and I have while we've been here. 
Uh, I think I'd like to start in just a short prayer uh, before I get rolling, and so if you'd bow your heads with me and do that. Lord, thank you for this time. Thank you for the ability to share part of my story and some of the things that you have brought me through. Lord, thank you for the people that are here. Help them in their hearts today to be listeners and to be open to what is shared. Let those words be from you and not from me. In Jesus' name, amen. So Lindsay and I got married in 2010, and we started going to a church called South Harbor. Uh, we've been there for nine years until the fall of 2020, when uh, the Lord really opened up some great opportunities for some new relationships, uh, which is weird because 2020 was not about relationships, but it was for us, which has been amazing. And uh, we've been here at uh, Harbor Life ever since. Uh, we're home. Uh, we love this welcoming community. Uh, we loved breaking bread. Um, uh, Wendy, I don't know if you're here listening online, but Wendy is the breaking bread queen. She found us like week three and was like, you're coming to my house. And I felt like Zacchaeus. It's like, oh my gosh, Jesus is inviting me to the house and I can't say no. And so we went and it was amazing. And uh, uh, so um, thank you, Wendy, if you're around uh, and listening this morning. Uh, I've loved men's small group. We've loved volunteering um, and doing all the things uh, to help uh, because uh, as we know, uh, in a church this size, it takes a village to make it happen, and we love it. Uh, there's no consumerism here. You are part of it, and we love it, and hopefully you can feel that as well. Um, all right, a little bit about, about my background before uh, the story. I was a country boy growing up uh, in the uh, black ground dirt of in between Hudsonville and Zealand along Chicago Drive. If you live in Holland, or, or sorry, if you work in Holland, you have to drive across Chicago Drive nowadays because you can't go on the highway. I feel sorry for you, but that's where I used to live. And so uh, it was a challenging social life because living in the country, you get to do all the things that people in the city can't do, but you don't have many friends either. And so it was a challenging social life for me growing up. There were no cell phones. There was no internet. There was no friends next door. So we leaned on our extended family uh, pretty greatly. Uh, I had tons of cousins, and I was the youngest, so I was looking up to all those cousins, and we would jump around uh, in the fields, on the farm, in the ponds. Uh, we would have 4-H together. We would bring sheep and cows and pigs to the fair. We would watch sporting events together as a family. We'd have sleepovers all the time. We went to the farm. My grandpa and grandma had a farm, and we went there often. We made forts in the barns. We chased animals. That, uh, we ate from the fruit trees. Pears, peaches, apples. We ran around the woods. We messed with the giant snapping turtle in the pond. It was like the size of my chest, I swear. It was huge, although I was six, so that was probably a smaller chest. <laughs> in elementary, that's where I had most of my time with my cousins. Uh, they were not in elementary. They were, uh, they were in middle school, probably, and I was in elementary school. Uh, we did tons of stuff together. In middle school and high school, we grew a little bit more distant because they were older, and so they got wheels way before me, and they were gone, and I was home and not doing much, but when I was 15 years old, I got that moped for the first time. It was a black moped with the purple spree writing on it. It was the coolest moped in town. It was the fastest moped in town because I had it bored out by a guy, and I would go 33 on the straightaway. It was pretty amazing. <laughs> Hog life, that's right. You know how it is. Okay. We should get together sometime. Okay, all right. 
so we grew, we grew distant, and, and before I knew it, I was in college. And I went to a little college in Wyoming, Michigan, called Grace Bible College. Now it's called Grace Christian University. It's a great place to be if, uh, if you're looking to go to college. And, uh, and life was great. I had multiple jobs. I was playing on the basketball team there. I found a deep, connected Christian community, much like what I find here. And that's important to the story. In my second year of college, I was an RA. I was living in Preston Hall, room 209. I had my own room. I was living on top of the world. I still shared a bathroom, didn't have anything to eat because I had to go to the dining hall to do it, but I was on top of the world. We had full days. I had classes all day. I had workouts in between. I had practice in the late afternoon and then homework at night. And so I would make my time in the afternoon kind of one where, see, I love the, the lighting in here because it's often, we, we use the sunlight to, to light this place, and that's why I love it. And that's what I did in my dorm room as well. So I was sitting one day after a long day of classes, kind of relaxing uh, before practice in the afternoon for basketball, and I had the lights down, and I just had the windows open, and I was just chilling out, probably had some music on. And I had a, a, a landline because, again, pre-cell phone, and uh, my phone call, my, my phone rang. And... Uh, so I picked up the receiver. It was cordless, by the way. I pulled up the antenna like this. You know how you do that? You get it to your phone, and you get it to your face, and then you pull it up, because that's, that's important. And it was a family member. And so in my quiet, dark room, I answered the phone, and a family member called and had a, a shaky voice and said, Kyle, I need to share some things with you. And that family, fam family member shared some things uh, that brought back memories for me as well. That family member shared about the sexual assault that they felt and dealt with all throughout their young days, their elementary days, probably aged four to six, four to seven, somewhere in there. And in that shaky voice, telling me all the things, and I was just sitting quietly, and when that family member stopped and said, what do you think? And I just said, me too. You see, for many years, I didn't know what my past was because my brain had repressed it and I was able to live life as a young person without having to deal with those tra traumatic things. And so that day in room 209 of Preston Hall, my body and my mind were filled with emotions and feelings that I forgot I had when I was six, seven, and eight years old. Immediately on the phone, when I had that handheld phone raised up to my cheek, I could remember exactly where we were in the furnace room, just to the left of the sump pump when something terrible happened to me. I remember next to the air hockey table when I was coerced to do things that are unspeakable. I remember being on the bottom of a tackle football game and the bottom of a pile and things happening with a bunch of guys on top of me. I remember having sleepovers and these sleepovers consisted of a waterbed, a big giant waterbed 
with a couple of us in there. And those things rush back to my feelings of, uh, I can feel it on my skin, I can feel it in my heart, and I can feel it in my head. It's in my soul forever. I remember on the way home one day, I was, drive, I was riding home with my mom from a, a sleepover. And I had some baseball cards in my hand. And my mom said, hey, where'd you get those baseball cards? You didn't take those with you. And I said, yeah, they gave them to me. They thought that I would enjoy them. I remember to this day what those baseball cards were. 1987, wood grain on the sides, tops, Ray Knight, Wally Backman, two Mets players, no-name guys. But those are two baseball cards that I probably still have in my card collection somewhere. I should probably burn them. But I, it was hush money, right? It was the thing that kept me quiet. They said, if you tell, we won't give you baseball cards. And so I don't know if you have a, a slide there, but there's a difference between repression and suppression, right? Repression is a theory that suggests your brain can protest or, yeah, protect you from painful or traumatic events by hiding them from your conscious mind. Suppression is when you have those things in your mind and you, you run from them, okay? But from the ages of probably eight until 20 or 21, I was in repression. My mind and my body were hiding that from me so that I could live a pretty normal life. And then when it was time, it was time for me to figure that out. The brain protects us, our bodies protect us, and I'm thankful that the Lord gave us bodies that were able to do that. I'll stop there for now. Brent. So obviously, you can see why we, we said it was a heavy story. Uh, Kyle will come up at the end to share the rest as well. Um, the reason we wanted to, to put that this week uh, it, it just to, is, again, to realize that, unfortunately, those kinds of things happen to too many people in this world. There, there, there's brokenness in the world. Humans are, are, are capable of amazingly good things, but we're also capable of unspeakable evil. And so today we're going to actually see that in the, in the story we're looking at as well. I'm hoping we can pull a couple things out of that and then bring Kyle back up to finish his story. So the story that we're going to be in today is in Genesis 38. We start at verse 1. Uh, it, if you were here with us last week, uh, we, we, we began the story of Joseph. And so each, each time we've gone through one of these mini-series, we've, we've taken a look at one main character. And in that space, uh, we, we then follow their whole story. We, we, we'll do that again today, too. And we've, we started last week with, with the beginning of a, of a very detailed uh, expression of, of, um, of Joseph's story. And then we get this strange interlude, like this strange commercial break that kind of jumps into the middle of the story. Uh, and it's a really weird one. It's a messed up one. You'll see. So we're going to ask ourselves the question as we're reading this, why is this story here? Why did this have to be inserted into this space? It starts this way. At that time, Judah left his brothers and went down to stay with a man of Adullam named Hira. There, Judah met the daughter of the Canaanite man named Shua. 
He married her and made love to her, and she became pregnant and gave birth to a son who was named Ur. She conceived again and gave birth to a son named Onan. She gave birth to still another son and named him Shelah. <clears throat> it was at Kazib that she gave birth to him. Judah got a wife for Ur, his firstborn, and her name was Tamar. But Ur, Judah's firstborn, was wicked in the Lord's sight, so the Lord put him to death. Then Judah said to Onan, Sleep with your brother's wife and fulfill your duty to her as a brother-in-law to raise up offspring for your brother. But Onan knew that his child would not be his, so whenever he slept with his brother's wife, he spilled on the ground to keep from providing offspring for his brother. What he did was wicked in the Lord's sight, so he put him to death also. Judah then said to his daughter-in-law Tamar, Live as a widow in your father's household until my son Shelah grows up. For he thought he may die too, just like his brothers. So Tamar went to live in her father's household. Right? There we go. Told you. Strange, strange story kicking us off here. Uh, the first question, like we said, is, is why is this story here? It, it, it fits right into the middle of the Joseph story. And as we work through it, we're going to see what we can pull from it. So first, what's just what's going on? It opens uh, by focusing on a man named Judah, who is one of Jacob's sons. He's actually going to be one of the future 12 tribes of Israel as well. And Judah has sons of his own. He arranges a marriage for his oldest son, Ur, to a woman named Tamar. And apparently, Ur is a bad guy. We don't know why, uh, but we talked about some of that cycling last week. And so Ur dies, which means Judah's second son, Onan, is bound to take his brother's wife as his own to provide an heir which I get, sounds so messed up to our modern culture. I understand that entirely. That is the way of the world back then, though, both in the biblical space and outside of the biblical space. You see, your, 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 your stuff transferred to your oldest son when you died, your inheritance, right? And, in that, and so if your oldest son was married and doesn't have an heir himself, then, uh, then you're kind of stuck, because as much, even though Tamar is, is his wife and you would assume it would just go to her, that's not how it works. Unfortunately, women don't have rights in the same way uh, in that particular space. So the way it would work is the next in line, the next, in ki- next of kin, would, would take his brother's widow uh, to produce an heir so that, the, that, your, that your property could get passed on. Again, I get it. Seems messed up. That's how the world worked at that particular time. And so that's what's going on here. So Judah says to his second son, hey, you've got to do your duty, the duty that, that's, that's set up in the way our culture works. Onan, however, doesn't like that plan. Why? Not because he doesn't like Tamar. That's important. Uh, he doesn't like the idea of having a child that would be considered his brother's. We're not told that he dislikes or rejects Tamar. We're told he uses her and abuses her. She's meaningless to him. There's something that he can use for his own pleasure, but he won't give the duty that he's supposed to give in the process. So Onan does not provide an heir and ends up dying himself. Judah has one more son, and the the responsibility to provide an heir for his brother then falls on him. But at this point, he's too young to be married along with the fact that Judah is afraid that he will die too. So Judah sends Tamar back to live with her dad until his son is old enough. That's where we're going. Let's keep going in the story. After a long time, Judah's wife, the daughter of Shua, died. 
When Judah had recovered from his grief, he went up to Timnah, to the, to the men who were shearing sheep, and his friend Hurrah, the Adomalite, went with him. When Tamar was told, your father-in-law is on the way to Timnah to shear his sheep, she shook off her widow's clothes, covered herself in a veil to disguise herself, then sat down at the entrance to Enim, which is on the road to Timnah. For she saw that, or for she saw that though Sheila had, grown, had, had now grown up, she had, been not, she had not been given him as his wife, given to him as his wife. When Judah saw her, he thought she was a prostitute, for she had covered her faiths. Not realizing that she was his daughter-in-law, he went over to her by the roadside and said, Come, now let me sleep with you. And what will you give me to sleep with you? She asked. I'll send you a young goat from my flock, he said. Will you give me something as a pledge until you send it? She asked. He said, What pledge should I give you? Your seal and its cord and the staff in your hand, she answered. So he gave them to her and slept with her, and she became pregnant by him. After she left, she took off her veil and put on her widow's clothes again. I told you it gets more messed up. And again, we ask, why is this story here? But let's keep just exploring what's happening. A long time has passed, which is important because what was supposed to happen? Judah had promised Tamar a husband when his son was old enough. But we realize that's her future. That's her livelihood. Whether it should be that way or not is another point of discussion. It is just how the way things work, though. Without, without a husband, she doesn't have, she's reliant on her father alone for survival. If he runs out of anything, she's got nothing left. We also see that she is up until this point in the story has been holding her side of the bargain. She still, after this long time, wears widow's clothing each and every day. So a long time has passed and Judah doesn't keep his promise. It appears that he has no intention to. See, Tamar, like with, like, with, like with the second brother, has no value to Judah at all. She's nothing to him. She has no future. Who cares? Judah doesn't. He said, I lost two sons, which the Bible tells because of what they did, not because of what she did. And he has no intention to lose another. She's just an object to him. And so what we see in the story is that Judah's wife dies. And after he finishes mourning, he goes on his trip with his buddy to Timnah. Tamar hears about that journey and goes out to meet him on the road. Judah believes she's a prostitute and they make a deal. Yeah, messed up one, but it's a deal nonetheless. Judah leaves his cord and his staff behind as a promise that he's going to send a goat uh, to pay her for her services. And she becomes pregnant. The story goes on. Meanwhile, Judah sent the young goat by his friend, the Edomite, in order to get his pledge, his pledge back from the woman, but he did not find her. He asked the men who live there, where is the shrine prostitute who was beside the road at Edinam? There hasn't been any shrine prostitute here, they said. So he went back to Judah and said, I didn't find her. Besides, the men who live there says there hasn't been any shrine prostitute here. Then Judah said, let her keep what she has, or, she, or, or we will become a laughingstock. After all, I did send her this young goat, but, I didn't, but you didn't find her. About three months later, Judah was told, your daughter-in-law, Tamar, is guilty of prostitution, and as a result, she's now pregnant. 
Judah said, bring her out and have her burned to death. <sighs> right? My guess is, if you're anything like me, you're not feeling so good about Judah right now. And we ought not be. I mean, the, 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 the guy made a, a promise to his daughter-in-law with absolutely no intention of keeping it. Regardless of her well-being, he doesn't care. He promised his son, doesn't give her son. She's not going to have a livelihood. He doesn't care. He then travels north to where she lived and doesn't visit her at all. Again, she's nothing to him. Then he sleeps with what he thinks is a prostitute. And even though he does try to pay her, he doesn't care about her. He, he cares about his reputation. He doesn't go make sure he finds her, make sure she gets what, what he promised. He, the only thing that he's worried about is being exposed and becoming a laughingstock. She's just a thing. Judah then hears that Tamar has been accused of prostitution. And his reaction is, kill her. Which, you, the irony is all over it there, right? You can see his hypocrisy. You can see how horrible he is in his thinking. It's pretty hypocritical, right? Judah had not done what he promised to take care of her future. And he, he doesn't say, well, I wonder why she did that. Maybe because she doesn't have a future and so she had to do something. No, he doesn't take that into consideration at all. And two, he himself has visited prostitutes, so it's not like he can have some moral high standing here. The story keeps going. As she was being brought out, he sent a message to her father-in-law. She said, I'm pregnant by the man who owns these, she said. And she added, see if you recognize whose seal and cord and staff these are. Judah recognized them and said, She is more righteous than I, since I would not give her my son, Shelah. And he did not sleep with her again. When the time came for her to give birth, there were twin boys in her womb. As she was giving birth, one of them put out his hand, and the midwife took a scarlet thread and tied it on to his wrist and said, This one came out first. But when he drew his hand back, his brother came out, and she said, So this is how you've broken out. And he was named Perez. Then his brother, who had the scarlet thread on his wrist, came out and was given the name Zerah. We get to the end of the story, and this is finally where the story turns. Tamar exposes Judah for what he's done. And it's at this moment that Judah is faced with a really important decision. Will he finally do the right thing? Or will he do more harm to cover up his mistake? It's important to remember where we've been in Genesis as well. What we've seen as we've worked through the stories of all of these different people in Genesis is that far more often than not, even as the, uh, the founders of the nation of Israel choose the wrong choice. We see it in Jacob's life over and over and over again. Even, even when we, that was the last series we were in, even when he starts to begin to reconcile with Esau, he then lies to him and goes a different direction. We saw it in the story of Isaac and the story of Abraham. We talked last week about how this cycle seems to be repeated over and over and over and over again. These people do things that they ought not do and then tend to double down and make it worse. Judah could have done that here too. 
We've seen that, we live, that we're living in a male-driven culture. Judah could have fought. She could have, he could have claimed she was a liar, that she had stolen those things, that she had set him up. And he probably wins, honestly. Even though he would be lying in that particular culture if the man said it was true. He's caught, but he still holds a lot of power. I want us to sit with, with, with I want to sit right there in the story for just a minute and observe two important truths. We're still asking ourselves, why is this story here? So the rabbis actually talk about this story as the redemption of Judah, believe it or not. The dude has done almost everything, everything wrong in his life. He's not kept his promises. He's, he's, he's treated his daughter-in-law like an object. He's mistreated her and hurt her. And yet, when he's faced with the truth, even though he could bury her and protect his reputation, he chooses not to. The first truth we see in this story is no matter how much we've messed up, no matter how much damage we've done, if we face it and own it, the future doesn't have to look like the past. Judah's life is a mess. We already saw all the ways he didn't live into what God had instructed. He caused harm. He treated Tamar terribly. And those are things he had to deal with, for, or he has to deal with for a long time. Every time he sees her, every time he's going to see his sons, he's got to deal with, the, with what he's done. What Judah did to Tamar was not okay. And just because he has an opportunity to be better today than he was yesterday does not let him off the hook for what he did and the pain that he caused. Let's be really clear about that. But when he's called out, when he, when he faces what he's done, he has a choice. Does he finally do the right thing or does he double down? And what we see in the story is that he, that, that he chooses the right thing. For the first time in our story, he actually sees Tamar. He sees her as a person, as someone who he then declares, she's more righteous than I am. When faced with, his, with, with the, with the, with the uh, consequences of his actions, he sees her and he goes, she did it right, I didn't. He owns the fact that he had done her wrong. He owns the fact that he's done God wrong, and he changes his action towards her. Like I said, why is this story here? The story the rabbis say is in the Bible because it's the story of Judah's redemption. I understand it's still messed up. There's a whole bunch of questions we still got to discuss in the midst of this, but for the first time in the book, in, in very few times in the book of Genesis, the, a character actually does what's right when faced with a hard choice. Judah goes on to become the largest of the 12 tribes of Israel, to be the home of what will eventually be Jerusalem, the holy city. He goes on to be the, the, the tribe in which Jesus comes out of. Judah is the home of Jerusalem, of Bethlehem, of Jesus. From brokenness, hope arises for Judah. The first truth that we see in this story is that tomorrow doesn't have to be like today. 
It's, a, it's actually a theme we see run through all of Scripture. If you were to pick your three biggest heroes of faith in Scripture, let's just go Moses, David, and Paul. All three of those men are murderers. All three of those men have done horrible, horrible things, and yet God said tomorrow doesn't have to be like today. Some of you here can relate to Judah in this story, where your history, your past, the things that have happened in, the pa- in, in your life make it feel like there's no way back. It's been too bad. There's too much on your plate. There's too many things that, that, that are unfixable. God says that's not true. Doesn't mean that we're saying what happened was okay. Doesn't, that doesn't mean that we're saying we don't have to deal with the fallout or the consequences of what we've done. Doesn't mean that we're definitely not saying the pain that we caused someone else doesn't matter. We'll talk about that in just a second. But the, but the truth of the hope of Scripture is that no matter how bad it's been before, tomorrow can be better if we face it, if we own it, if we confess it. See, the principle of confession in Scripture falls right here. Why does God ask us to confess? Because it's not so that he knows something. It's so that we can see the thing that we've done, feel the weight of it, and then live in forgiveness, which is what we see in Judah's story here. But that does lead us to our second truth. Because my guess is there's some of you that are still struggling and wrestling with that a bit. I would be too. We're left with an obvious question, especially when we hear Kyle's story earlier, and if it hit close to home to you, then you're definitely running with that. You're thinking, Judah's restored, that's garbage. What about Tamar? She still has to live with how she was treated. For a good portion of her life, being treated like an object of no value, not being seen by anybody, mistreated, used, and abused. Mm-hmm. That's true. See, if Tamar lived the rest of her life angry with Judah, we'd all understand that. But we see another truth here, too. A truth that we've seen run throughout the book of Genesis as well. The truth is that God cares deeply for those who've been mistreated. We've seen two women in our journey through Genesis who've been poorly treated by the house of Abraham. Whether it was Abraham, or, or, or by the house of Abraham, like I said, his descendants. The first one we've, we've talked about a number of times already, Hagar, mistreated by Sarah, sent away to die. And what she finds when she's in the desert, assuming she's dead, is that God sees her in that space. We talked about it before, the very first person to give a name to God in Scripture is Hagar, a foreign woman sent away by Abraham and Sarah. And she names God the one who sees because she's seen by him. He restores her, gives her a future and a legacy. The second woman we see is Tamar. And God does the same thing. Judah finally sees her. God blesses her with twins who will become the heirs of Judah. He sees her, he cares for her. And I want to show you one more thing as well. In the book of Matthew... We get the genealogy of Jesus. I'm just going to read it to you. Matthew 1, 1. This is the genealogy of Jesus, the Messiah, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Abraham was the father of Isaac, and Isaac was the father of Jacob. 
Jacob, the father of Judah and his brothers. Judah, the father of Perez and Zerah, whose mother was Tamar. Perez, the father of Hezron. Hezron, the father of Ram. Ram, the father of Abinadad. Abinadad, the father of Nishan. Nishan, the father of, Sam, uh, of Salmon. Salmon, the father of Boaz, whose mother was Ruth. And Boaz, the father of Obed, or sorry, whose mother was Rahab. Boaz, the father of Obed, whose mother was Ruth. I want you to notice something really important about this genealogy. There are three women in this genealogy named, and there actually aren't any more if we were to finish it out. I want you to first notice who's not there. If you were going to pick the women you think would be in the genealogy of Jesus, my guess is your first thought would be Sarah. Maybe Rebecca, Rachel, not there either, right? Who's there? The first is Tamar, a woman who is not seen by Judah, who is mistreated, who is hurting, and God says, I see you. I'm going to include you in my genealogy. Your name is going to be specifically named. The second is Rahab. If you, don't, if you aren't familiar with Rahab's story, she also worked as a prostitute in the city of Jericho. She follows God and then now is in the genealogy of Jesus too. The third is Ruth, a foreigner who had to go through unspeakable heartache in the beginning of her life as well. You have three women in the genealogy of Jesus, all going through immense pain in their lives and all who get named specifically in the genealogy of Jesus. Continuing this theme that we saw with Hagar, that in your lowest moments, in the moments in which it feels like the rest of the world misses you, God says, I see you and I'm there with you. All three of them find restoration in that space. Some of you this morning relate more to Tamar in this story. Whether, whether it's things that you've done or things that were done to you, it feels like you're worthless in this world. It feels like everyone's against you or oppressive or, or just looks over you or through you or treats you like an object. If that's you this morning, I hope this genealogy gives you some hope. Hope the story of Hagar gives you some hope. That in those moments in which we feel like no one sees us or cares about us or can restore us or that there's any hope at all, God says, I do. I'd like to invite Kyle to come up and finish the rest of his story in the midst of this as well. All right, so I'm in Preston Hall, room 209. The room is dark. I'm having a conversation with a family member and I'm hearing the horrific things that have been done in the past. My memory and emotions hit me as like it was yesterday. My brain has repressed those things from when I was six to 10 years old, but it's like they may have taken place this morning. Through weeks of sadness, anger, confusion, helplessness, and loneliness. I was present in all my classes, in basketball practice, in life with my family, uh, but my mind was not there. See, because I'm Dutch. If you're Dutch, you know what I'm talking about. In, in the Dutch world, we like rugs, and we like brooms. We like to 
pick up the edge of the rug and sweep everything underneath it. I learned that, and sometimes I still do that. Sorry, Lindsay. So for many weeks, I was dealing with helplessness and anger and confusion. What do I do with this? Who should I go to? Luckily, I was at Grace Bible College, and I was in Bible classes and theology classes, and enough sledgehammers hit me over the head. I knew what my only answer was. Enough is enough, I said. So I went back to Preston Hall, room 209, in that dark room, and I laid flat on the floor in a dirty carpet because I was 20 years old, single, and had my own room. You can imagine what that room looked like. That carpet was not clean, and I buried my face into it, and I ugly cried. I didn't just cry a little tear that was like in the movies. I ugly cried. And I asked God, I said, take away this load, Lord. I don't know what to do with it. And immediately I felt Christ near me, as if it was already taken away. I had bricks in my backpack that I didn't know I had, that I was walking around with for years and years and years. And as I laid there and dirty cried, ugly cried in the dirty carpet, I forgave because I have been forgiven. Because this would not define me. I wasn't going to live my life with a glass ceiling over my head. I would never be the husband that God would want me to be. I would never be a father that God would want me to be. God wept when those things happened to me in that basement, on the football field, and in that bed. But guys, I'm a child of God, and you are too. God sent his son to die so that the Judas and the Tamars could all be forgiven, could all feel the love of a heavenly father so that we can bring other people to him. He chose this way. Now, Genesis is a messed up thing, man. There are tough stories. There's messed up people. And there's a reason that's in the Bible. People are sinful, and people hurt people. It's just the way it goes. But God also takes the mess and makes it the message, doesn't he? It's amazing how many people God has allowed me to walk with who have been through some of the same things that I had. Now, I'm no counselor. I'm no doctor, although I play one on TV. No, I don't. I'm no psychologist, but I have been through some things. I don't know if my phone number is available up there again, um, but uh, again, please reach out to somebody. Reach out to myself, reach out to Brent or Pastor Lisa, Danielle, some of your friends. I don't know what this could look like, but I know there's more than one person in here that have dealt with these things. I'd love to walk with you. I don't know what that would look like. But where two or three are gathered, God is there. And he can do that. He can redeem our stories. He can use our stories to help others. And if we have an open heart to it, we can be vessels for him, for change, for healing, for love and restorative hope.
that only God gives us through his son. I mentioned before that I was really thankful for the community that I was in when I had to go through that really hard time. This is a very similar community to that community. People here have been so open and loving to Lindsay and myself and our kids since we've been here. And I know that this is a place where healing and restorative hope can happen. Thanks. Thank you. Thank you for sharing that. And uh, yeah, like Kyle said, I just want to reiterate, uh, we do this church thing uh, because we realize we're broken people in a broken world that experience a lot of pain and hurt and, and hardship. And, and, we, and God gathers us together so we can help carry each other's burdens. We can walk together through those different things. Maybe you've experienced something similar to what Kyle had or some other kind of brokenness in, our, in our, your life. Uh, there is Healing comes in the community. And when you find out that you're not the only one that's been through it, that you're not the only one that's experienced those things, that there are others who have and they'd like to walk with you. Uh, it's a hard walk. Let's not, let's not pretend that it's not. Uh, wrestling with that pain is hard and difficult. Uh, but we know that when we suppress it, when we just keep it down, it, it doesn't go away. It just stays there and churns for a while, right? So our hope and prayer is that this morning that you've been able to see yourself in the story, that you're, that you're able to see that in your brokenness, whether you were the one who caused it and now are feeling feelings of guilt and shame and regret, or you are the one who is affected by it and your feelings, feelings of worthlessness, pain, and hardship. In both spaces, God says, I see you, that I love you and that I care about you, that I came to die for you, like Kyle said. In both of those spaces, God says that the community around you Come together and carry each other's burdens. Walk out your salvation with fear and trembling together as we all work towards the flourishing life God offers. There's hope for both Judah and Tamar that tomorrow will be better, will be better than yesterday. That walking together, we can create a space that's different than what was. Will you pray with me? Father God, we... We come before you again and just realize that, that we can come into this space with brokenness. Lord, for those of us here who are feeling overwhelmed by the pain that we've caused someone else, God, I, we pray that we have eyes to see it for what it is. That we don't hide from the thing that we do like Judah had to. We face it. We look at it. We own it. And the consequences that come from it. God, in the midst of that, we pray that you see us. Not as the person who did horrible things, but as someone you love. Show us the path to restoration and redemption in the midst of those things. God, for those of us who relate more with Tamar, where we feel like we're just an object that other people have used and abused and tossed away. For those who've been attacked or assaulted or hurt. God, we pray that your spirit meet them in that place and heal some of that pain, if not all of it. Pray that they, that they can experience, like Hagar did, that you see them also as a beloved child of yours. God, finally we pray that we might be a community that one is open with each other about the things that, we've, that we're wrestling with, that we're going through, the pains that we've experienced or caused, 
and we might be a place in which we walk together towards you and towards restoration. Amen.